1: Live from downtown Salt Lake City, the Utah Debate Commission welcomes you to the 3rd Congressional District Candidates Debate.
2: Welcome, hello, I'm David Magelby. It's my pleasure to have been invited by the Utah Debate Commission to moderate this evening's 3rd Congressional District Debate. This event, held live on October 15th, is part of the Utah Debate Commission's work to educate voters and encourage the civil exchange of ideas. If you're watching or listening live to this debate, we encourage your reactions and your questions on social media using the hashtag UTDebates and the hashtag ListenLearnVote. The candidates are with me here in Salt Lake City. They are alphabetically Republican Congressman John Curtis, Democrat Devin Thorpe. During this debate, candidates will respond to questions I will ask as well as to questions submitted on social media. They will also be questioned by news reporters and students from Brigham Young University. The Utah Debate Commission has established the format to be used for today's debate. Candidates will have up to two minutes to respond to each question. At my discretion, there may be up to 30-second rebuttals. I may also ask follow-up questions for a 30-second response. A random draw approved by the candidates and held prior to the debate determined that Devon Thorpe will respond first to the initial question. We will alternate who answers first on the remaining questions throughout the debate. Having already referenced the candidates' current or former titles, I will address them all as Mr. from this point on. And let me note for the broadcast audience that there is no audience here in the studio. A small number of us in the room are following all the guidelines for public health protocols and social distancing. It's important for every voter to know something personal about a candidate. And the Utah Debate Commission crafted a question for each that allows that opportunity. The first one then goes to Mr. Thorpe. It's the same question that will go to Mr. Curtis. Mr. Thorpe, today's political atmosphere appears more polarized than ever. If you were elected, how will your congressional behavior support national healing and greater political civility. Two minutes.
3: Well, <clears throat> thank you. I have not always been a Democrat. Uh, in fact, I worked for U.S. Senator Jake Garn 30 years ago. And so I have made my own journey uh, from uh, from being a Republican to being a Democrat. And I want to talk a little bit about the insights that gives me for creating that bipartisanship, Uh, the key thing to know is that my values have never changed. Uh, I think uh, Republicans and Democrats value and want the same things. They want a strong economy. They want clean air. They want clean water. They want uh, good schools and good health care. And I will uh, always look for the best solutions wherever I find them. But what I have seen over the last 30 years is that the best solutions come, oftentimes, from Democrats. And that's why I've moved parties. That insight, I think, gives me a powerful ability to uh, help bridge uh, divides between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Today, I am proud to belong to the party of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I am uh, grateful to know and proud to endorse Utah's Chris Peterson, Karina Brown, and Greg Scortis, leaders of the highest character. And I am honored to be the Democratic nominee for this congressional seat. And I am okay. confident that drawing on my experience that I can work on bipartisan solutions that will be the best for our community and help heal the divides that exist in our communities today.
2: Thank you, Mr. Thorpe. I misspoke. Uh, It was supposed to be one minute, but I said two minutes, and you were just under two minutes. Mr.
1: Curtis. Thank you. And uh, thank you. Very quickly, let me thank the Utah Debate Commission. You do such an amazing professional job with these debates. And Professor Magleby, thank you for being here. This is not our first debate, and it's great to be here with you. And uh, Devin, it's great to be with you. I've been in uh, three races over the last three years, and I've had a lot of opponents, and I can clearly say no one has worked as hard as you have uh, on this race, so thank Thank you you very much. I'm very proud of my record of bipartisan work in Washington, D.C. I'm fortunate enough to have passed seven bills through the House, the Senate, and signed into law by President Trump. Every single one of these bills has been co-sponsored by a Democrat and passed the House and Senate in a wide bipartisan manner. Some of them have been voice voted, so it's a little bit hard to say exactly what percentage it is. But I suspect it's in the 97, 98, maybe even a 99 percent bipartisan vote on these bills. The other thing that I would just really like to say is I'm disappointed that so much of what our constituents hear is the bad side of what we do. My experience for the last three years is there's a tremendous amount of work going on behind the cameras in a bipartisan manner the vast majority of my colleagues, both Republicans and Democrats, show up to work trying to find solutions, looking for ways to work together. There's a a great gentleman from San Diego who's a Democrat, and I had a bill I wanted him to support. I went to see him. I laid the information out on the table, and I said to him, my goal is that you don't hate my bill. By the time my bill went through, he voted for it, and every time he sees me in the hallway pre-COVID, he would give me a hug. And I just wish that so many of our constituents could actually see that side of Washington, D.C., instead of what the media often shows them.
2: Let's go to our first question. It's from a student, and this one will be answered first by Mr. Curtis. A minute, 30 seconds on this one.
0: Hi, my name is Sophie Plantamura, and I'm a student at BYU. My question is whether you agree with most scientists that the Earth is experiencing man-caused climate change. If so, what actions would you take to reduce carbon emissions? For Congressman Curtis, what is your voting record on legislation to reduce emissions?
1: Thank you. Uh, I love the question in, in in half, and I hate the question in half. And let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, I'll answer the question. Yes, I do believe the climate's changing. And I believe over decades and decades and decades clearly uh, the Industrial Revolution that's had an impact uh, on the climate. Uh, and let me tell you why I really don't like the question either because I find that it becomes a litmus test, and that's the beginning of Republicans and Democrats not getting along on this issue. Too much of the debate is, is centered on the fringes. Rarely do those in the middle put forth solutions. We spend our time talking about unreasonable solutions that I say take the head off to fix the headache, and on the other side, heads in the sand, not paying attention or believing anything. I've tried really hard to be a conservative voice on the environment. Uh, to answer your question more specifically, I believe I'm the only Republican in the history of the United States that's actually stood on the House floor with the House in session and told my colleagues that I believe the climate's changing and that man's having an influence over it. I sponsored a, res- a letter to the administration asking them to promote America's clean energy overseas. And two weeks ago, I led a letter, a bipartisan letter, to, uh, that passed a resolution through the House acknowledging Clean Energy Week. I've sponsored bills the, uh, with Congressman DeGoose from Colorado. It's a soils bill. It tests the carbon on public lands, how much the soil is absorbing. And one of my favorite bills uh, that I've sponsored is actually a, a storage tax credit. We know right now that the bottleneck with renewables is storage. And I apologize. I'm out of time because I would really love a whole hour to talk about this. But thank you for your question.
2: And Mr. Thorpe, please.
3: Well, <clears throat> I'm grateful that uh, Congressman Curtis is such an advocate for climate change, because it means that I don't have to spend one minute as a Democrat convincing people in the 3rd District that climate change is real. Here's what I need to convince you of, that although I'm very troubled uh, by the Congressman's record on voting, yes, he's put forward some legislation he mentioned, but in fact... He has never voted for a bill that was designed to reduce carbon emissions, and he has repeatedly voted for bills that uh, increase the use of fossil fuels, Uh, and so uh, we have got to come together and actually take action on climate change, and there's nothing extreme about the the bills that have come forward. In fact... uh, The congressman is appropriately proud of a speech he gave to the Sutherland Institute last month. But within two weeks, he had another, yet another, opportunity to vote for a carbon emission reduction bill and voted no again. Uh, And it's just critically important that we move past the dialogue because actions speak louder than words. And we've got to act on climate change. And my promise to Utahns is I will deliver the action.
2: Let's go to the next question. It's going to be for Mr. Thorpe first. Where do you stand on Congress passing additional COVID relief now for the unemployed, small businesses, the airlines and schools, as well as state and local governments? Those four specific areas that have been part of various packages proposed
3: by the president, the House Democrats and others. Mr. Thorpe. I stand firmly in the position that we need to act. And the, the priority at this time must, must, must be the needs of the people who are suffering. Let's talk a little bit about those needs. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, of course, we have uh, unemployed people. Uh, uh, we've got to act. We've got to provide additional interim support uh, for people who are unemployed. That is absolutely essential. We have got... Uh, to, to help the airlines, with a focus on keeping people employed. We missed a, her- a horrible opportunity, Well, a great opportunity that was missed horribly, and as a result, 40,000 people in the airline industry were laid off on October 1st. Uh, it, it, the House of Representatives, led by the de- uh, Democrats, the uh, Senate, led by the Republicans, and the President have utterly failed. And of course, we've got to deliver more aid to schools to have our children in school and not provide the kind of substantial aid that is absolutely required to make sure that the, all of the PPE is there, air filters, and other things that would make it safe. You know, in Utah, we can't do school outside in January. It's not going to work. We, the federal government, has really let us down on that. And then finally, of course. You talked about municipalities. I, I was visiting with some of the county council down in, uh, in Grand County. And, and, and Grand County and Moab, both their municipal governments have been decimated by the lack of revenue. I think it's consistently across and around the district that we're seeing people uh, underfunded. And, yes, the federal government has got to bail out some of our cities.
2: Mr. Thorpe, thank you. That went a bit over. So a minute, 40 seconds for you. Mr.
1: Thank Hughes. you. I'm going to use a few of those seconds to, uh, to climb. climb- comment on uh, the climate bills that uh, Mr. Thorpe mentioned that I didn't vote for. Devin, I'd give you a little challenge to find one of those bills that you're referring to that had more than two or three Republican co-sponsors. I'd challenge you to find any of those bills that Republicans were consulted with before they were voted on. And more importantly, I'd challenge you to find a single one that the Senate will actually pick up and debate themselves. And that's the problem right now is these message bills that really have no intention of passing but are simply meant to bring up in debate so that they can say that they're actually doing what's important, rather than sitting down with Republicans and working together across the aisle, as was the first question. Now, in reference to COVID, I can't tell you how pleased I was to be part of those votes on the early COVID bills. It was actually a a magic moment to watch Republicans and Democrats come together and literally in hours pass legislation that had such a major impact on Americans That legislation, of course, had a few flaws because it was put together so quickly. But imagine Republicans and Democrats coming together in that order. Now, as we move forward, people say Congress has not acted on legislation, and I'd like to correct that that misunderstanding. No action by Congress is actually action. Congress has spoken. They're not ready for additional legislation yet. One of the reasons is some of the demands on the Democratic Party. The primary demand of the Democrats right now is that we put $600 extra unemployment insurance in for Americans, meaning they make more staying home than going to work. I don't care where I go in this district. I hear incessantly, stop the $600. It's keeping my business from running. We do need to pass legislation. It needs to be targeted. It needs to aim, be aimed at those most in need and not a broad shotgun over everything.
2: Joining us now is Lad Egan from KSL for a follow-up on this question. Mr. Egan.
0: Uh, gentlemen, good evening. Economists say that this pandemic recession is uneven because it's impacting certain groups more than others, particularly women who are suffering from job losses and also disruptions to child care and school. So my question is, how would you craft a stimulus rescue package that targets the help to those who need it most? One minute. Mr. Curtis, first.
1: Uh, thank you, lad. Uh, there's no better example of what you're talking about than on the, on the Navajo Nation. I was actually air, uh, there this week, and they've been hit hard, and COVID has disproportionately hit the Navajo Nation. To answer your question, let me tell you, first of all, what we don't do. We don't pick a number and then design the legislation. And if you'll notice in Washington, it's all about $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion, $1.6 trillion. Without any regard as to how it's going to be spent, what we really need to do is take the time and do exactly as you've indicated and find out who is being hurt and design programs specifically to help them. And I really regret that that's not how legislation is being approached right now. It's all about how much can we spend and then trying to figure out how to spend it. And in most cases is a broad shotgun over the whole economy. Some people are doing very well and
3: some are not. And that's what I'd like to see us do.
2: Mr. Thorpe, one minute.
3: Mr. Curtis is right. The uh, Navajo Nation is the best example in Utah of the tremendous harm that's being suffered because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I want to go back to what he said moments ago, that inaction is action. If inaction is action and people in Utah are suffering, that's not the right action. We have got to take action. We have got to provide additional funding to improve health care resources, improve water resources, improve access to electricity and basic needs on the Navajo Nation. There are so many people suffering in so many different ways that it is uh, unfair of us to think of inaction as an action that is in any way responsive to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am committed to delivering real aid to people who are really suffering. Let's
2: go to the next question now. It's Ben Winslow from Fox 13. Ben?
0: Hi, gentlemen. Uh, just the question that I have here is, you have, I, I have two questions, really. You've both traveled your district extensively, courting voters, as you've said, and talking about issues. So where is the area that needs the most attention, congressional help, and why?
2: One minute. This goes to Mr. Thorpe first.
3: Well, we've been talking about the needs of the Navajo Nation, and it it is, in fact, the needs. And let's talk about it. It isn't just improving health care, which is a key issue on the Navajo Nation, right, improving health care, not only in response to COVID, but more generally, uh, barely adequate health services. Uh, The the Navajo Nation, uh, uh, 30 to 40 percent of the people living in the Navajo Nation in Utah lack access to water. Lack a- to running water, lack access to electricity. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, the United States uh, passed a law called the, the rural electrification, right? And, and uh, farms across the country, in the most remote places, were electrified. But somehow we missed rural uh, Native Americans. Uh, and so it is just critically important that we uh, take a step back and deliver on the needs that uh, are so important to our Native Americans.
2: And Mr. Curtis, uh, Ben has a specific question on this for you, as well as the the broader one.
3: Well, I just
0: also want to know, um, what are you going to do to assist communities that are impacted?
1: Great. I I wish we had an hour uh, just to dive into this. Uh, This week, I did one of my favorite things to do in this position, and that was to travel down south. We left Sunday night. We spent some time in San Juan County, Grand County, Emory County, and uh, Carbon County. And uh, to answer your question about specifics, I've done everything from drive 40,000 masks down to the Navajos. I've helped them support them in their water rights uh, lawsuit. I've worked with, uh, I have a a bill in, it's called my Rural Broadband Permitting Bill to get broadband onto the reservation and down through rural Utah. I I truly um, am, am deeply concerned about our Navajos I believe it would be accurate to say I've visited the reservation um, more times than all the previous congressmen combined. I've actually visited five tribes, all of those that are connected with Bears Ears, on their reservation to see them. Let me expand this just a little bit broader to rural Utah. Uh, it's true that Native Americans are perhaps the, need our help the most, but rural Utah also fits into that category. Even before COVID, we had unemployment that was too high we had opioid, opioid use that was too high. Uh, my team has taken it on as one of our greatest responsibilities to serve rural Utah. It's also the one I enjoy the very most. Every year we do a rural, rural broadband business summit, uh, trying to, to encourage economic development in the area. And I personally have spent uh, some of the, the happiest time of, of my three years down in rural Utah. Uh,
2: since Mr. Curtis addressed rural Utah as well, let me allow you to have
3: 20 seconds to talk about rural Utah if you'd like to, Mr. Thorpe. I, thank you. I. I, too, have visited extensively in rural Utah. In fact, I have a running debate with my uh, campaign team about whether or not I can win Emory County because I've practically moved there. Uh, It it is a wonderful uh, area, and they have great needs, and we need to continue to invest in those communities to make sure that everyone in rural Utah gets uh, their needs addressed. And I am committed absolutely to following up on uh, the needs that they have in that community.
2: This question will go to Mr. Curtis first. Do you think the Affordable Care Act is helping Utah? If so, why? If not, what specific policies would you use to replace it, and how would you pay for it? Let's make it a minute 30 on this one.
1: Uh, a minute 30 to talk about health care is a tough one, but, but let me try. You know, shortly before I got to Congress, the Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act and were unsuccessful. And since that time, what's been happening a lot, more quietly than than I think people know, is gradual modification to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, On a bipartisan basis, we've done things like repeal the Cadillac tax. Uh, There've been executive orders. We've done away with the individual mandate, uh, the terrible medical device tax. And and my point is, is that the legislative process is is going to work on the Affordable Care Act and making it a a better act. And uh, I actually think that's the appropriate thing to do. We hear a lot about repeal I think Republicans uh, talked about repeal and replace and made the mistake of not having really anything to replace it with. But since that time, we have worked hard on, on making it a better bill. Now, as to your question about what I would specifically do, I think one of the things right in front of us that would save Utah's and, and those uh, all throughout the district money is expanding the use of uh, health savings accounts, HSAs. We've got to decouple them from high-premium accounts. We have to make them so they can be used for other things. There's no reason we shouldn't be using health savings accounts to pay for insurance premiums. There's no reason we shouldn't be using them to pay for wellness products that keep us healthy. One of our problems with our health care system is we spend time taking care of the sick. Too much time, and not as much time as we should, keeping people healthy.
3: Mr. Thorpe. This is so deeply personal to me because I have an Affordable Care Act health insurance plan, and so I'm familiar deeply, intimately with uh, the incredible value that it provides and its deep flaws. Uh, I have a $12,000 deductible. I can barely afford to get the health care I need, because, even though I can afford the insurance Uh, And there are countless people around the country that are in the same boat. They're deferring preventive care, uh, diagnostic care. And and there are some people who don't have the resources to cover that deductible. And in a tragic event of a cancer or a heart failure, they they would literally have to file bankruptcy. No one in this country should have to file bankruptcy with health insurance. And let's add to that that uh, there are so many tens of millions of people in this country who don't have health insurance and and if they get sick, they could die. I want to figure out, uh, Professor Magleby, you asked, uh, how do we pay for this? Uh, That question is of relatively little importance to me, because I want to know who the expendable people are. People are literally dying because of a lack of health insurance. Show me the expendable ones, and then let's have a talk about how we pay for it. Uh, But Let's be clear, there have been a lot of modifications that uh, the congressman has voted against. He voted to allow for pre-existing conditions to not be covered. Uh, He voted against negotiating drug prices with the federal government and voted against capping insurance premiums.
2: Now, I'm going to ask you both to comment briefly, a follow-up. I know uh, Mr. Curtis wants to respond to that specific matter. Uh, But more broadly, if the House were to consider again legislation like proposed by the Republicans, to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which it voted to do multiple times. And as we are learning in the hearing uh, for for Supreme Court Justice nominee this week, would you vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act absent a plan in place? Mr. Curtis, and then you can also respond to the specific that was just raised. 30
1: seconds. The ship has sailed. Republicans tried to repeal. It was unsuccessful. That question is totally off the table. And to be more specific, no, not without a replacement. Let me tell you one of the things that actually makes me very, very angry. I hear this all the time. It is an absolute fabrication and lie. And anybody that says it either is lying or they have believed somebody that is lying. And that is somehow that Republicans don't want to protect pre-existing conditions or somehow that I have voted to repeal pre-existing conditions. The only way you get there is to find some vote that I made, let's suppose it was against the Affordable Care Act, and then make the assumption that if I didn't like the Affordable Care Act, I didn't like any provision of it, and that I would somehow repeal uh, pre-existing conditions. I don't know a Republican, including the President of the United States, who has any intention of repealing pre-existing conditions. Let's face it, Democrats won on this one. It was one of the things in the original Affordable Care Act that we have to admit was good. And they can't just take the victory lap and say, we won. Everybody wants it. They have to campaign on the fact that somehow Republicans don't like it. And the minute we get in office, we're going to do this 180 and take it away. It's just not true. And anybody that says it is fabricating it. Mr. Thorpe, 45 seconds to respond.
3: I am so grateful that the congressman is uh, committed to protecting pre-existing conditions because he voted for H.R. 692, which specifically allowed states to allow insurance companies in their state, health insurance companies, to uh, disallow pre-existing conditions. So I'm glad to hear that he's committed to it. I know I am personally committed to it because it is so essentially important. My wife is a, a, a diabetic and has been since she was five years old. And so we have managed our careers together over the last 30 years all around managing our our pre-existing conditions. It's absolutely vitally essential to Americans that we protect them. And Thank I've you. I've just
1: got to say, Devin, if you want to be the type of politician that you say you want to be, you cannot cherry-pick a bill, go down deep inside and find one provision that I opposed in a bill that had tons of bad provisions, and somehow make the conclusion that you know how I feel about an issue.
2: Let's go to the next question. Uh, I appreciate the hearty, hearty exchange. It's from a BYU student, and I'll go to Mr. Thorpe for 90 seconds.
0: Hi, my name is Emily Stauffer. I am a student at Brigham Young University. My question to both of you today is do you believe that in our country we have found a balance between ensuring the safety of police officers and ensuring the safety of citizens? If not, how can we find that balance?
3: Mr. Thorpe, 90 seconds. This is a critically important issue. I'm so grateful that you asked the the question. Let's be clear, no one in this country wants to live in a situation where if we call 911, no one comes to help. Uh, so let's have that be our baseline understanding. We all agree. Now, that said, we have seen over the last uh, uh, decade or so, as, as uh, video recordings of m- police misbehavior have become more common, that in fact there are issues that we need to deal with in policing. And uh, there are so many things that we can do to get that right. But one of the keys is to create a national database that would record uh, all of the police misbehavior. So a bad cop can't go from one place to another. And and this is one that happened right under the congressman's watch when he was the mayor of Provo. Uh, a, a police officer, the police chief, came with some questionable background and then was accused credibly, and the city ultimately settled uh, in a large dollar amount settlement because he had been credibly accused of sexual harassment and assault of five different women. Uh, and that, and then the congressman voted against a bill that would have created this national database for tracking uh, The bad cops. So there are things that we need to do, and uh, I commit that I will do them if I'm elected to replace the congressman. Mr. Curtis.
1: Once again, Devin, if you want to be the type of politician that you say you want to be, you've got to learn your facts a lot better than that. You you know a fraction of what happened in Provo, and uh, you know a fraction of what I vote for and how I vote. Uh, Let me say this. Uh, Before I was the mayor of Provo, I had a really fun job. Uh, I built shooting ranges. I've been on more police ranges uh, than perhaps anybody in this state, maybe even in the country, for 10 years. Traveled around the world. I got to know police officers. officers. That's where my tremendous respect for them started to grow. As a mayor of Provo, I saw just how difficult their job was. Um, My heart aches for the the lives of those that lost their job uh, while serving uh, Provo citizens. And uh, those who have seen that through my eyes can never really look at policing the same way. Thank you to all of our law enforcement officers around the country and around the world for the great service that you perform. To answer your question, no, we have not found a proper balance. Uh, This whole concept of defunding is so strange to me. With my experience in police, with the police departments, I know the exact opposite problem is happening. We don't have adequate funding. We don't have adequate funding for body cameras. We don't have adequate funding for training. We don't have adequate funding to have enough police officers on the job so that they're not stressed out when they go to work. I'm really proud to be an original co-sponsor of the Justice Act, which does provide funding for body cameras. It bans chokeholds and other important uh, provisions that we need to make if we're going to improve the situation. If you're just
2: joining us, we're about halfway through uh, a robust debate featuring candidates John Curtis and Devin Thorpe competing to represent Utah's third congressional district. I'm David Magleby and I'm honored to be moderating today's exchange. You can contribute your comments and questions to the live broadcast on social media by using the hashtag UTDebates and the hashtag Listen, Learn and Vote. Let's get back to questions. The next question will go to Mr. Curtis first. Do you agree with reports from numerous intelligence agencies that Russia and other foreign powers were actively involved in seeking to elect Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016? And do you agree that those efforts continue in 2020? More broadly, what should be done about efforts of hostile foreign governments to influence U.S. elections? A minute, 30 seconds.
1: Thank you. Um, I believe unequivocally that uh, foreign interests have meddled in our elections. And uh, I think it goes far broader than just one candidate and goes far longer than President Trump was even a candidate. For the last five or six months, I've had the opportunity to serve on the China task force every week for uh, five or six months. I've had three, four briefings, sometimes classified briefings. If you think Russia is the only one meddling in our elections, if you think President Trump is the only one that's trying to be uh, benefited from this meddling, you're absolutely wrong. Now, what do we need to do about it? You know, what's interesting, I had a briefing just on this very topic today about our readiness for these elections. And we will forever, not just in this election, but as a country, because of technology, we will be forever trying to protect ourselves from foreign meddling. But if you go back and you look at the type of meddling that happened in these elections, it was not necessarily getting into databases. It was not necessarily changing vote tallies. It was using our social media to influence the minds and hearts of Americans. That we can control individually. And one of the single best things we can do to protect our elections is to find reliable news sources, to not pay attention to something that's not documented. That had more influence over our election than any meddling into election systems or election databases or into election machines. Mr. Thorpe.
3: Um, I want to start by acknowledging that I misspoke uh, on the uh, national database question that I mentioned. Uh, The congressman didn't Vote against it. He skipped the vote. Uh, I apologize for misspeaking. Uh, on this topic, I think there is wide agreement uh, uh, that in that the Russians did actively seek and work to elect President Donald Trump, uh, and uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. I think there is uh, wide agreement in the. Uh, 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 in terms of our uh, experts on this, that they are continuing to do that. Uh, and uh, that is scary to me, and it should be scary to everyone, to think about uh, foreign actors working to uh, harm our invest- our, uh, our election cycle. And I am committed to working to make sure that uh, we hold uh, our uh, administration to account uh, for this. And, and we saw with, with the... Um, the impeachment that President Trump repeated, at least the, uh, the uh, crimes he was accused of in the impeachment trial were uh, the same kinds of things with the Russians and the Ukrainians. It was repeated behavior. It is scary to think. And so it, it's critically important that this election remove Donald Trump from office.
2: I'd like to ask a quick follow-up on this, 30 seconds. It's something alluded to by Mr. Curtis. There were efforts by the Russians and others to get into voter databases. They were unsuccessful in 2016, but they were not absent. That could happen again. And for too long in our country, we have funded elections on the cheap. We are not adequately secure and protected in this country. If reelected or elected, what will you do to protect the election infrastructure?
1: Mr. Curtis. So uh, Congress has allocated money. I think it's fair to say that uh, there is no amount of money that would really totally make us safe and feel like uh, that we don't have a worry. I will continue to support uh, funds and allocating money to shore up this system. One of the things that we need to remember is that this is uh, part of the autonomy of states, and most of our elections are controlled by the state and uh, what election machines they choose to use, what processes they choose to use, it's actually a good thing. It makes it much more difficult for foreign interest to come in and get into one port and uh, influence our elections. Uh, but much of the responsibility of uh, this needs to fall on states and counties. And let me just tell you how proud we should be here in Utah and my specific Utah county that, where I live that I watch very closely. We have really amazing people working on this. They have been able to, to improve their systems, and, and we still have work to do. But I'm actually very impressed
3: here in Utah with the work that's been done. Mr. Thorpe. Uh, We absolutely need to continue to invest in cybersecurity technology, and we're going to have to invest in that at every level, including at the uh, military level, to make sure that our uh, counter cybersecurity technology and uh, uh, those folks in our armed forces and our intelligence community uh, have all the resources they need to protect our elections.
2: The next question is from Emily Flores of ABC4 Utah, and it'll go to Mr. Thorpe first. One minute.
1: Yes, thank you all for making tonight possible, and good evening to you both gentlemen. For a time, both of you identified and ran as members of the opposing party. Congressman Curtis, you were a registered Democrat, and Mr. Thorpe, you were a Republican. You did touch on
0: this a bit earlier. What motivated the switch for both of you, and for what personal
1: convictions would you be willing to change parties again if your current party no longer espoused them?
3: Well... Yeah, I did uh, talk a little bit about this. And, and my values have not changed. I want to reiterate that. It's so, so critically important. I think uh, Democrats and Republicans across the country, and certainly in the third district of Utah, want the same things, right? They want safe schools. They want good health care. They want uh, good, clean air. Uh, we all want the same things. And I'll change back to being a Republican when the Republicans have better solutions, that's what will drive me back uh, home. But I learned so much from Jake Garn when I was uh, working for uh, the senator. Uh, He is a man of such incredible integrity. I remember his example. uh, There was uh, quite a scandal around savings and loans, and it was all driven by campaign finance donations that had been made, and that Charles Keating came to him, offered him donations, and he passed them up to avoid... Uh, even the appearance of scandal. And I think that's a great example I've learned from, and I commit to following that example. Mr. Curtis.
1: Well, I can't uh, hear this question without smiling just a little bit because I must have explained this a thousand times, and I'm not sure anybody, including myself, fully understands uh, the answer to this. But let me give it a try. Um, I lived out of state. I actually, first, I I grew up here in Utah. as a very conservative Republican in a very conservative home, and those values feel very comfortable to me. I left the state for a few years, came back, And found the dominance of the Republican Party 20, 30 years ago was not necessarily healthy for the state, that that we needed a two party system. And I would like to use this moment to to, to really point out that I think one of the fallacies that we have in politics is that somehow one party is right and therefore one party is wrong. And in reality, it's really not that black and white. There are many good things in the Democratic Party. and I've t- told Devin before, I-, I-, I regret that the Democrats beat us to the line on climate, and they're doing a better job than us on, on that. And I think you can find things in both parties that are both good and bad. Me, personally, I, I tend to identify far better with the Republican values, particularly the fiscal conservative uh, nature of it uh, of late. I-, I see trends that are very disturbing to me with socialism. Somehow capitalism to, to Democrats in Washington, D.C. has become a bad word. I hear things talked about that are are socialist that would have been talked about in the shadows a few years ago, and now they're shouted from the housetops. And so for me, it's quite comfortable to be a Republican. And to answer your question, those are the values,
3: I think, that hold me here.
2: And Mr. Thorpe will give 30 seconds for additional comments just to even
3: the time. Sure. I just want to talk a little bit about this uh, red herring that uh, the congressman has thrown into the discussion about socialism. Of course, I'm a capitalist. I spent 25 years uh, as a a finance expert. I ran an investment banking firm. I was a CFO. I was a corporate treasurer, ran a mortgage company. Uh, I'm a capitalist, and I'm proud to be a capitalist, but that doesn't mean that we can't uh, put some fetters on capitalism to make it work better for everyone and not just the rich.
2: Good, let's go to our next question. This is related to voting in a way, in an indirect way, and Utah voters are thinking about it today because they received something in the mail yesterday. What is your view on the funding of the U.S. Postal Service, and in particular, do you support the actions taken by Louis DeJoy to reduce overtime and remove sorting machines only months before much of the country will be voting by mail? Are you confident the U.S. Postal Service will have adequate funding to deliver ballots to voters on time and return them to the election offices in a timely manner. This goes to Mr. Curtis first.
1: Oh, here again, I wish we had longer on this one. Let me just say, I've spent quite a bit of time on this. Um, The post office was given a $10 billion loan in our original COVID legislation. They have $14 billion cash on hand, clearly enough money to operate into next year. Now that doesn't mean we don't have some fundamental flaws in the post office that must be addressed. Primarily, those are the fault of Congress. But I was called back on a weekend several weeks ago to vote on a bill that was supposedly going to save the post office and give them an additional $25 billion. Can you imagine the irony of the Democrats giving the leader of the post office, who they don't like, an additional $25 billion because they say that they don't trust him? It is simply not true. This concept that he's pulling out machines or moving boxes is absolutely no different than any other postmaster has done at any other time. There were more mailboxes and sorting machines moved under the Obama administration than under the Trump administration. I talked to our local people, our local postmaster, and this is what he told me. The increase in mail-in ballots increases the number of mail letters sent by about 3%. The day he told me that, Utah was a half a million letters under capacity. Clearly, although the Post has, Office has problems, it's not in jeopardy of closing its doors tomorrow, and it's a mistake to make this a political issue.
3: Mr. Thorpe. This is an incredibly important issue, and uh, rural Utahns depend, uh, as do many other people, you know, senior citizens for their, their their medication. That's how we get medication at our houses, by mail. Uh, there are so many things that we depend on, from Social Security checks to uh, the, the medications uh, so it, it is critically important, uh, so we, we shouldn 't diminish uh, the importance of this at all when we 're we 're talking about it. Uh, obviously, uh, there are some uh, challenges with the post office they they 're well known and well documented, and we need to continue to invest in the post office. Uh, That said, I was pleased, if I understood correctly, that there was, as a result of a uh, court action today, a settlement reached with the post office, and the postmaster general has agreed to restore uh, removed boxes, to restore removed equipment, and to get us back to uh, the baseline at which we were operating uh, some months ago. And we are clearly not operating at that level today. And he's admitted that and agreed to restore functionality to that level. Let's go to the next question. It's from one of our viewers via social
2: media. It is the following. Your district is home to Utah's Silicon Slopes. Artificial intelligence technology has been blamed for social media fueling the political divide in the United States. That was actually alluded to a bit earlier. Should Congress be involved in regulating an uh, artificial intelligence influence on social media. This goes to Mr. Thorpe first. Two minutes.
3: This is uh, a challenge for us today. There's no question. And social media is proving to be uh, much more problematic than we had anticipated. I think uh, all of us bought into the Facebook story that by uh, having a platform on which we could all come together, we would unify one another. And what has happened is it has. Uh, Uh, fractionalized uh, our communities. And so we have to address that. Um, And I think Congress does have a role. And we need to look at uh, uh, regulation on artificial intelligence. One of the regulations that's a common sense regulation is to make sure that coders understand what the AI they're using does and how it does it. If they can't explain the code that's generated by the artificial intelligence, then they shouldn't be using it on the public. So that's, that's one uh, regulation that Congress should certainly look at immediately. We also need to look at antitrust issues with uh, our largest tech companies in the world. When we look at Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, we need to, and Apple, we need to make sure uh, that those companies don't become so much larger and capable than the federal government <laughs> that we can no longer re- effectively regulate them. So there, are, there is a, uh, clearly a role for Congress and the federal government in looking at those things. And I commit that in Washington, I will work on those issues.
1: Mr. Curtis. Uh, well, I'm really proud of Silicon Slopes. It's something I brag about in Washington, D.C. on a frequent basis. It's, it's amazing, uh, the the bright, sharp minds that we have working there, the creativity, the hard work. And I get to see firsthand as I, as I visit uh, their various companies, uh, very proud of, of what they've done. But yes, clearly a regulation is needed. Now, uh, we have to be careful. Uh, we know for a fact that the heavy hand of government can totally destroy uh, these industries if we're not careful. And I think it's important that as we develop regulation, that we work with industry to find uh, the proper regulation, to find the appropriate uh, amount of regulation uh, without killing them. But I must say, um, we wouldn't need this regulation if human beings were just decent and civil. And uh, one of my greatest regrets is that when I was mayor of Provo, we used social media an amazing way to communicate with our residents and right now, I hate to even look at it. It's depressing, and uh, I, can, I can only last a few minutes. And, and uh, it's just not a happy place to be, and that's really regrettable. And, and we're not really wise if we think this is totally a regulation problem. It's, it's instilled in the hearts and minds of many of us who need to do a far better job of, of monitoring our own behavior and those that we come across. Let
2: me connect the dots for our viewers on something that was talked about earlier, but relates to social media, Facebook, Instagram, and other platforms. And that has to do with political ads. A lot of your uh, constituents are seeing a lot of ads on those uh, platforms right now. The Federal Election Commission ruled that those modes of communication would not be held to the same standard as television advertising, which requires a disclaimer that tells the recipient of the communication who paid for it. That would have required, for instance, uh, the Russian agency that paid for those Facebook ads to have talked about the Internet Research Foundation that they were funding from the Politburo. So do you favor legislation in the new Congress that would require ads, the political ads on Facebook and the other platforms to have the same disclaimer that applies to broadcast and radio ads? And this one, this one goes to Mr. Curtis. One minute.
1: I wish we could go further than that. I wish my regret is even in on television, you get to hear that it's from some pack that you've never heard of and that gives you so little information. I, I wish we could be far more transparent where this money is coming from, not so much in this race. As a matter of fact, probably hardly at all in this race, but we're all aware of another race, congressional race here in Utah, where we're seeing millions and millions and millions of dollars. I, I, we may be looking at $15, 20000000 million of out-of-state money coming into this race, and Utah's really have no idea where this money's coming from. So I would vote not only for what you're suggesting, but much greater transparency uh, so that people can actually see where this money's coming from and who's paying for it.
3: Mr. Thorpe. This is critically important. And, and at the outset of our campaign, we made a decision that we would treat all of the video we post on social media as if it were on television or radio, as as if it were broadcast. So all of our ads on social media that are video have that little four-second tagline at the end that says, I'm Devin Thorpe, I'm a candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. And we remain committed to that. So this is personal for me. I believe absolutely in that kind of standard that you're talking about, Dr. Magleby. Uh, But the I would also add that there's a more fundamental problem that we need to address, and that's Citizens United. And we have got to remove this silly notion that corporations are people and are entitled to the fundamental rights that human beings are entitled to in this country. Corporations are essential to our prosperity and our happiness and everything else. I get that, but they're not human beings. We need to regulate them. This will be, I think, our
2: final question. You've been uh, so good at engaging each other, but let's do one more. When a vaccine for COVID-19 comes out, how will you ensure that all of your constituents have access to it? And what will the cost be to the individual recipient? I think this one goes to Mr. Thorpe first.
3: COVID vaccines absolutely, positively must be free. There can be no friction uh, at the consumer level, at the patient level, for uh, getting this uh, the vaccine. Because the alternative is that, again, we will see a, a tremendous disparity between rich and poor. And we will see people that are disenfranchised and vulnerable, whether it's the Navajo Nation or low-income people in, in Salt Lake County or elsewhere, who will be the victims of this horrible pandemic, long after the affluent uh, have uh, charged ahead and taken advantage of the vaccines themselves because they had the money to do it. So, yes, it's got to be absolutely free. We've got to make sure that the federal government helps to fund that. Uh, The federal government has helped to fund that already. uh, But we've got to make sure that uh, the uh, pharmaceutical companies aren't profiteering off of the vaccine as well. Mr. Curtis.
1: I don't know anybody uh, that thinks that we should charge for this vaccine, and uh, that would absolutely be wrong. I think the bigger challenge is um, how do we decide who gets it and how do we distribute it? Imagine the challenge of of distributing hundreds of millions of vaccines across the country. And uh, I I know in Congress that's what we talk about and spend a, a great deal of time. I want my constituents to know I'm engaged in this debate myself, watching and seeing how these decisions are made to make sure that we get first to our most vulnerable and to our first responders and then as appropriate. But let me tell you, I think a far bigger problem, and that's the politicizing of this vaccine. Somehow it's been tied to President Trump and therefore it's bad if it's come out of the Trump administration. That will only hurt those who are most vulnerable because they'll be most likely to listen to it. So I hope we can can depoliticize this and make sure that the vaccine's getting to the right people first.
2: You were so succinct on that. We get a 30 second question, kind of a boost, uh, a bonus question. Uh, Do you favor raising the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 right now? It's been there for a long time, since 2007. If not, why not? And if yes, to what level? And this one goes to Mr. Curtis first.
1: Yeah. I think you'd have to look long and hard for for anybody that was paying $7.25 to anybody trying to sustain a working uh, wage. Uh, I don't get it. I don't understand this concept that somehow you can force uh, artificially this wage up. Um, what I do think you can do, which I'm really proud uh, that has happened under the Trump administration, is the lowest black unemployment rate in history, the lowest Hispanic unemployment rate in history. 3.9 million people lifted off welfare stamp rolls.
2: Thank you, Mr. Curtis. We're going to need a, a time, 30 seconds. We're sorry. in that bonus okay. question period. Okay, Mr. Un- Ford.
3: Uh, unfettered capitalism brought us slavery. Let's be clear about that. Uh, we need to move forward. Uh, and raise the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour. In Utah we believe in self-reliance. What a great principle. But the principle is meaningless if there isn't a way to be self-reliant. People need to be paid a living wage if they're going to do work. And Congressman, uh, there are millions of people in this country working at or near minimum wage.
2: Mr. Soap, thank you.
3: Prior to the era
2: it was agreed that the candidates would deliver their 1-minute uh, closing statements in the following order. Mr. Thorpe, and then Mr. Curtis. Mr. Thorpe.
3: COVID is devastating our country and and families across the country and here in Utah, and we need a federal response. The epidemic of divisiveness in our country that plagues our country will not end until we change the leadership. A vote for me is a vote for campaign finance reform that will allow us to take back our government and hold Washington accountable to the voters our partisan system uh, of government uh, requires Republicans in red districts to vote with their party, uh, as the congressman does 96 percent of the time, where, where at the same time, that same process forces Democrats in red districts to vote for bipartisan solutions. And I commit to do exactly that. If you're excited to make these changes, visit Devonthorpe.com to learn how you can help. And I am excited and honored to be your next congressman. Mr. Curtis.
1: I'd like to use my minute to quickly thank a number of people. I'm so pleased that I had the opportunity to serve with Congressman Rob Bishop, who's leaving Congress this year. And I hope Utahns know how much he's benefited our state. I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve with Representative Chris Stewart. I don't know anybody with more integrity and goodwill. I thank you for your mentorship and your friendship. I'm thankful for my staff. It's the best in the country. They're amazing. My favorite compliment is how good my staff is. I'm thankful for my family, my kids, and my great wife to another 38 great years with her. This is my third election in three years. When I started, I promised to be a different type of politician. To do that, I've tried hard to represent everybody in my district. I've traveled to the Navajo range. I've traveled to rural. I've voted against my party to show the women in our country that they're important. I've tried to be a voice on the stewardship of this earth, and i've tried to lead and recruit a staff that follows this behavior i'm not perfect but i try hard with hard work and humility to be all that you need me to be thank you
2: it's been an enlightening hour with our candidates john curtis and devon thorpe they are running in the 2020 general election in the third congressional district thank you both for your participation tonight and for your desire to serve in public office thanks also to our panelists for their contributions a special thanks today for the efforts of Karen Hale and Wayne Niederhauser, co-chairs of the Utah Debate Commission Board. We appreciate the many hours they spend leading the commission and working to bring Utah voters these debates. Thanks also to Nina Sliding, the Debate Commission's Executive Director, for her work with candidates, media partners, and sponsors. The commission thanks our generous sponsors, the Larry H. and Gail Miller Family Foundation, and the George S. and Delora Story-Eccles Foundation. The Utah Debate Commission urges you to vote in the upcoming election. Please do not forget to mail in your ballot on or before November 2nd. Our national experiment in self-government requires of us a willingness to peacefully express our concerns and viewpoints, as happened here in this debate. It also requires all Americans to honor and uphold the law. One of our most precious liberties is the right to vote. Please vote. I'm David Maggleby. Thank you for tuning in.
0: I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home.